Beloved, please turn with me to Romans chapter 9, if you have your copy of God's Word. And uh, I can say, even as you're turning there, uh, what a, a blessing it was just about every single Sunday when I would walk down from this platform, Mr. Robert Berry would walk up to me and bring a word of encouragement, would say specific things about what I had just preached, would oftentimes elaborate on it, talk about it, things that perhaps he had preached in the past. And the one thing that I know without any doubt that Robert would want us to know this morning is that the preaching of the gospel must go on, that the ministry of the word must go on, and that is exactly what he would want to happen this morning. And so we can rejoice in that reality that Robert Berry loved the word, that he was under the word, he was affected by the word, he was a Christian, and he would want this this morning to see the word proclaimed yet again. We are in Romans chapter 9, and if I can ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word, uh, this morning we are going to look in particular at verses 1 through 3, but I want to read the entire chapter uh, just so that you can see what's coming, uh, and there's a lot coming, uh, Romans chapter 9 being one of the most sort of argued about, uh, somewhat controversial chapters in all of the Bible as it concerns God's sovereignty, but we're going to begin this morning reading the chapter, but then focusing in on Paul's comments in verses 1 through 3 is autobiographical comments. Please hear the word of God from Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your <clears throat> offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we embark uh, upon this glorious, exalted text in Romans 9, we pray for your wisdom, we pray for your grace, and we pray that you'd help us to understand more and more who you are as the sovereign God and who we are as wretched sinners in need of your sovereign grace in Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you for your truth drive it into our hearts even now that we would look to Christ alone for our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope that whet your appetite for the next several months of preaching uh, because we will be walking through these verses seeking to understand what they mean. The purposes of God are inscrutable. His ways are mysterious. Who can fully understand them? As finite creatures with limited knowledge and minimal understanding, our attempts to interpret God's ways are weak at best. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Prophet Isaiah records those familiar words of our Lord in Isaiah 55, 8, 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are 
your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This ought to teach us something about ruminating and, and, and considering and thinking over and over and over again about the things that happen in this life and letting them overwhelm us and cause distress and anxiety. Why, Lord? Why, Lord? Why, Lord? Trying to figure it out and to fix it in our minds. We come to a verse like this and we're, we're put back in our place. Who can know the mind of the Lord? His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So this divine declaration should not come as a surprise since it's made by the living and true God who sits on the throne of the universe, the all-powerful and infinitely wise God, the sovereign God who reigns over all. Dear ones, God is sovereign. He is sovereign. He governs, ordains, and works all things according to His decrees. He never wonders or worries about tomorrow. Aren't you glad about that? That he's not wondering and worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. The future is in his hands. He never loses control or is unable to fulfill his plans. Do you ever lose control and see your plans unfulfilled? Well, I know the answer to that. Because it's true for all of us that we do. See this in our lives. No, as the psalmist states in Psalm 115 and verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And isn't it this truth that compelled Paul, the Apostle Paul, to erupt in doxology at the end of this, what is a very long section between chapters 9 and 11, in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, Paul erupts in a doxology and he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his, what? His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. His glory is is manifested in his hiddenness of his secret will. His glory is manifested in us as we trust in him, not knowing tomorrow not knowing his, his ways. It is this humble, reverent, and adoring posture that we are meant to take this morning as we come to the ninth chapter of Romans, a chapter that gives specific attention to God's sovereign election and divine freedom, particularly as it relates to the salvation of Israel, to the salvation of Israel. But before unpacking these first few verses of of chapter 9, there's something important that we must understand. While Romans 9 does, in one sense, begin a new section of Paul's letter, and some new themes are certainly explored, the chapter must not be viewed as disconnected from all that has come before it in chapters 1 through 8. No, 
Paul, you'll remember, has already uh, spilled a, a considerable amount of ink expounding upon Israel's guilt under the law and expounding upon all those Old Testament texts on justification by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by works of the law and not through Jewish identity. Therefore, dear ones, please hear this. Romans 9 is a continuation of, the, of Paul's exposition of the gospel, the gospel of salvation by grace alone that he began back in chapter 1. Because I will be arguing over and over again something that Paul himself is arguing here, and that is there is no doctrine of salvation by grace alone if God is not sovereign over our salvation. There cannot be. Because salvation by cooperation means that it's grace plus works. But if it's all of grace, it must be all of God who saves us by grace and by His sovereign purpose. And so Romans 9 is a continuation of Paul's exposition of the gospel of salvation by grace alone that began in chapter 1 dealing in particular with questions related to the promises of God given to Israel in the Old Covenant and the unbelief expressed by a majority of them in his day. In other words, how can all of these gospel promises, covenant promises, be made to this special people in the Old Covenant and so many of them, according to Paul and according to this gospel, be left in a place of unbelief? How can it be? Well, Paul wants to give some instruction on that. Paul writes in Romans 9, 6 that Israel's unbelief does not mean that the word of God has failed. Did you see that in verse 6? It's a key text in this chapter. This does not mean that the word of God has failed. And he goes on in chapter 9 to explain why this is. Indeed, it's Paul's primary aim in chapters 9 through 11, to show that God's word, God's gospel, has not failed in relation to Israel's rejection of Christ, in large part. Indeed, God's word never fails. God's word always accomplishes that for which it is sent forth to do. One writer puts it this way, quote, The word of God has not wrecked on the rocks of Israel's unbelief. The word of God has not wrecked on the rocks of Israel's unbelief. Again, we go back to Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, where it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Perhaps you'll remember that Paul begins his letter to the Romans in a similar vein. He alludes to the efficacy of God's word with a kind of thesis statement in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, that is in this gospel message, the righteousness of God, the saving righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall what? Live by faith. So beloved, here we're reminded that native to the word of God, native to the word of God, and in particular, the gospel is the operative saving power of God. It is native to the word that the operative power of God is in it to save sinners. The saving power of God works through the ministry of the gospel. This is why we proclaim it. This is what the devil is most against, is the proclamation of the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's that gospel that, that, that has the power of God in it that raises dead sinners to life. It's why we share this gospel. It's why we preach this gospel. It's why we're going on a mission trip to preach and share this gospel. It, because we know that inherent in this gospel is the saving power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel that Robert Berry preached and shared with co-workers because he believed that in this gospel is the power of God into salvation. Those who receive Christ by faith shall live. They shall be forgiven in full. They shall receive a perfect robe of righteousness. They shall be justified. They are guaranteed everlasting life in heaven. Salvation is all of grace. But Paul knew that many of his own countrymen and many Gentiles conceived of salvation as something that they earned, something that they achieved through religious ritual and good works and not as something received by grace through faith in Christ. And it's not so different today. If you ask your average, I'll just say southerner, why they think that they're, if, if, they're, if you say, why, do you think you're going to go to heaven? They say, well, yes. They say, well, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? The typical response is going to be some kind of salvation by cooperation or some kind of a response that, that speaks of religious affiliation. Well, yes, I'm going to heaven. I'm a Presbyterian. Yes, I'm going to heaven. I'm a Baptist. Yes, I'm going to heaven. I'm a Methodist or or. Uh, perhaps it's uh, looking at religious um, rites. Yes, I'm going to heaven. I, I was baptized. Yes, I'm going to heaven. I'm a member of a church. Some kind of religious rituals. Or yes, I'm going to heaven. I've lived a, a decent life. And so it's not so different in our own day. People believe that religious affiliation or social status or family ties or one's own moral standing justifies them before God. And so to underscore that mankind cannot save himself, the Apostle Paul labors to make clear the doctrine of human depravity in a section spanning from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. He's trying to clearly set forth the doctrine of human depravity so he can show mankind's need. Mankind doesn't always know his or her need. I just mentioned that. I've told the story before, but maybe you haven't heard it, that uh, one, uh, one uh, day, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, the, the great prize fighter from the 70s and 80s, got a, 
got on an airplane and uh, didn't put his seatbelt on. And the stewardess came by, and uh, you know Muhammad Ali was a very arrogant and prideful man. And, and uh, the stewardess came by and said, sir, you need to put on your seatbelt. And uh, Muhammad Ali uh, retorted, uh, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the lady said, uh, Superman don't need no airplane either. Put it on. <laughs> but that, that's, that's our response oftentimes. We don't, we, don't, we don't need grace. We're okay. Or maybe just give me a little bit. But I'm, I'm generally okay on my own and with my own efforts thinking that we don't actually need the sovereign God who made us, who knit us together in our mother's womb and made us for his own glory. That was the thrust and compulsion of the Protestant Reformation was to declare from the rooftops that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved by grace and grace alone in Christ alone and received by faith alone. Anything else says that Christ's work is not enough and that we must somehow add to it. But we do not. And so Paul shows that God's wrath has been revealed against all mankind who reject God and exchange the glory of the immortal God for false images who, and who attempt to earn God's favor through national identity and religious, religious ritual and good works. He labors to show that all are sinners and accountable to God, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well. So Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 9 through 18, What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then he gives this string of Old Testament quotations. None is righteous. This is Romans chapter 2, 9 through 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a description of fallen humanity. The inspired Paul is making the case that all mankind, both Jews and Gentiles, is guilty and unable to save themselves. He's demonstrating from all of these Old Testament passages that humanity's only real hope is the gospel. All of us sitting in this room this morning, our only real solid hope in this life is the gospel, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a hope anchored in the sovereign grace of God in Christ. And so Paul writes in chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Would anybody contest this? Would anybody here, anybody, any reasonable person say, no, I've not fallen short of the glory of God. My life is impeccable. There's nothing there. I I'm happy to stand before God and for him uh, to examine my life and to judge me and for me to be judged on my own merits, my own life. No one in their right mind would do such a thing. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But dear ones, thankfully, this is not the only news that Paul shares. We don't just have bad news here. There's good news. There's gospel. He explains in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 3 that those who are in Christ, who are united to him, are, quote, justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation, as one who would bear wrath in our place by his blood and to be received by faith. It is to this doctrine of justification by grace through faith that Paul turns his attention to in chapters 4 and 5. And he does so by highlighting Old Testament giants, Abraham and David, showing that they were not justified by works or by their ethnic Jewishness or by circumcision, but by faith in God's covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus. They, Abraham and David, believed God's gospel promise, and it was credited to them as what? As righteousness. Abraham and David were not saved by works, which uh, so many ethnic Jews were saying and claiming. Paul, in Romans chapters 4 and 5, is showing them that that is indeed not the case, that they were saved by grace through faith in God's covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus. And so Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, dear ones, what we learn here is that reconciliation with God is only possible through faith in Jesus. He alone is the mediator between God and man. He alone is the bridge between sinful man and holy God. His blood alone can pay the debt of our guilt and sin. Peace with God is only possible through trusting in Him and receiving him as Savior and King. And so I want to pause for just a moment this morning, and in light of the death of one of our dear, dear friends and church members, who I believe in the realms of glory would want this clearly communicated this morning, that as you hear this gospel, as you hear, first of all, the bad news of of who we are inherently, as those who are fallen in our hearts and our minds and our affections and our wills, as those who are under, in our natural selves, under God's condemnation, that the the only hope that we have for salvation from our sin is the gospel. And so if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins, and received Christ as your Lord and your Savior and your King, there is no better time to do so than the present. No better time. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. He willingly and compassionately saves sinners. Trust Him now, and you will be restored to communion with God. Trust Him now, And you will never be separated from his love. And you will live in his presence and for his glory 
for the rest of your earthly life and for eternity. The alternative is a life separated from God in hell and in damnation. It's what Christ experienced on the cross so that we don't have to. Let us put our hope and our trust in him. This brings us to chapter 6 through 8 where Paul deals with a number of doctrinal themes, not least that of sanctification, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life of the believer. He, he demonstrates that united to Christ, in union with Christ, the believer is no longer a slave to Satan. The believer is no longer under the dominion of sin, nor is he under the crushing demands of the law as a means to be saved. We no longer in Christ wake up in the morning thinking, oh my, the law is still there over me. I must obey it perfectly in order to be saved. We do not live under those crushing demands anymore because Christ obeyed the law for us and then died on the cross for our sins. And now we are in him by grace through faith and justified. We are united to him. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law. We are no longer under the burden of the law in that sense. We are no longer under the dominion of sin, or enslaved to Satan. No, we've been set free. The Christian has been set free. Romans 8, verse 2. And while every single Christian believer will continue to fight against remaining indwelling sin for the rest of their lives, God is working by His Spirit in us and through us, and He's empowering us to die more and more to sin every day and to live more and more to righteousness, to put off the old man and to put on the new, being increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The last time we were together, we concluded Romans 8, a chapter written to bolster the assurance of God's suffering people, to remind them in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And sometimes the suffering is so weighty, so heavy in this life, that it should actually encourage us, this verse, because it reminds us of how much weightier and glorious heaven must be if our sufferings in this life can't even compare with the glory to be revealed to us. Paul writes Romans 8 to remind us that while much groaning in this world due to tribulation and distress and suffering... God has not, nor will he ever forsake us. We will never be separated from his love. And he will always, without fail, work all things. Let me say that again. All things together for good to those who love him and are calling, called according to his purpose. We believe this. We believe this not because we can perfectly understand it, but because God has said it. And he is faithful, and his promises are true. Beloved, by God's grace, we are not conquered by the sufferings and tribulations and hostilities that we endure in this world. No, God's word says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And dear ones, it's these truths from chapters 1 through 8 that we must keep in mind as we cast our anchor into chapter 9 and discover all of its gospel riches about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Chapter 9 is not intended to be a heady and highly academic section dealing with the finer points of election and predestination. It's not a portion of Scripture reserved only for theologians and philosophers. No, this is God's word for all of God's people, a powerful word that reinforces the gracious nature of salvation for both Jew and Gentile and demonstrates that this salvation is not the consequence of mankind's works or the exercising of his depraved will, but rather the fruit of the free and sovereign purpose of God. The hymn writer Margaret Clarkson captures this truth beautifully in a hymn that we sing a lot in this congregation. She writes, O Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. O Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain. All evil overruling as none but conqueror could, your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. O Father, you are sovereign, we see you dimly now, but soon before your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs forth anew, our sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and worship you. Amen. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners, but his sovereignty, we see in our text for this morning, does not diminish Paul's love and compassion for his lost countrymen. It does not nullify his sorrow and anguish over the lost. He longs for his Jewish kinsmen to be saved. And it's Paul's autobiographical statement that I want us to just spend a few moments on this morning as we commence this important chapter. I intended to do the first five verses, but after my introduction, I thought that wouldn't be a wise thing. And so we'll look at verses one through three. Look there with me. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What a way to begin what may be the most important chapter on election in the entire Bible. What a way to begin. Here we see, first of all, Paul's heart for the lost. And there are just two points this morning. Paul's heart for the lost and our heart for the lost. 
Paul begins this section on the sovereignty and freedom of God in election with an autobiographical statement. And he makes the statement appealing to his union with Christ and his conscience. Again, there in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's speaking the truth in Christ, united to Christ. It's the, the union with Christ is the lens through which Paul understood his entire Christian life and all of salvation in union with Christ. And he's speaking the truth in Christ. And why does he make his appeal in this way? Well, it's likely that some believe that Paul disdained his own people, that he hated his own countrymen because of some of the things that he had written about them, some of the things that he was preaching as it related to Israel and to his Jewish uh, kinsmen. For example, in this very letter, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes of his countrymen, the Jews, quote, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. How about chapter 10 and verse 21? He cites Isaiah 65, 2, which says of Israel, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16, he charges them with killing the prophets and killing the Lord Jesus Christ himself, thus filling up the full measure of their sins. When you look up how to win friends and influence people on the internet, you probably will not see some encouragement to give texts like this to people. These are hard texts. But Paul speaking the truth about the spiritual condition of his countrymen does not therefore mean that he does not love them, that he does not have compassion for them. Quite the contrary. The apostle speaks the truth to and about his countrymen precisely because he loves them. It's because he loves them that he gives the bad news about what it means to be outside of Christ to reject the Messiah, to reject God's promises. He speaks hard truths by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he wants them to be saved. He has exceeding sorrow and constant anguish in his heart over their lost condition. Yes, it's the glory of God that primarily drives Paul and compels Paul in his missionary endeavors and activity, but it's also his love and compassion for the lost, and in, in particular, his countrymen that drives him. He even makes the surprising statement that he wished that he could be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. And it must be understood uh, that within this sort of phrase, there really needs to be, it needs to be understood that if such a thing were possible. Paul knows, he's just been preaching all of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing. And so he knows it's impossible for him to be separated from Christ so that his countrymen can be saved. But he makes this statement to show the depth of his sorrow and anguish over the lostness of his kinsmen. He wants his readers to understand from the outset that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation 
is never meant to turn God's people into unfeeling theologians. Or as some would call them, hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-Calvinist, it's a kind of theological category of someone who thinks, well, God is sovereign, He's going to do what He does, and so it really doesn't matter what we do. And I don't really need to evangelize, and I really don't need to have a big heart for the lost, which is totally unbiblical to have such an approach, which we will unpack that in future weeks. Like our Lord Jesus Himself, we ought to be weeping over the lost condition of our neighbors even as we fully embrace the sovereignty of God. That's what we see in Paul's life and ministry here and in the book of Acts. Well, this brings us to our heart for the lost. Our heart for the lost. As we come to these verses at the outset of Romans 9 and we, we see Paul's autobiographical comment as he leads into a very... Um, powerful discussion over the sovereignty of God in election and predestination. We have to ask ourselves, which I believe we're supposed to, do we see this kind of compassion and anguish over the lost in our own hearts? The world just wants us to see people in various categories, in various identities. It's the culture that that we live in. But do we see people as those who are inside or outside of Christ? As Christian believers, these are the lenses by which we should see the world. And as we see people who are outside of Christ, we ought to have a heart of compassion for them. Our heart ought to be in anguish. And we must all admit that we often find that that is not the case. That we are quick, quicker to size people up and often cast people out based upon their political affiliation, based upon something else that we might see, rather than to have love and compassion and be prayerful. Do we see this kind of heart attitude in us? Are we ready and willing, 1 Peter 3.15, to share with others the hope of the gospel that is in our hearts? Again, so many turn to Romans 9 to debate the finer points of theology as it concerns election and the sovereignty of God. But here we are reminded at the outset of this chapter to pray for the lost, to cultivate compassion for the lost, to reach out to the lost with the life-giving truth and power of the gospel, and not to see it as needing to be some formal thing where you bring your family Bible to, to the the neighbor next door and, and scare them with your 40-pound Bible or feel like you need to quickly move into a conversation about heaven and hell with the person helping you at Chick-fil-A. Some, some may do that. But the kind of evangelism, the kind of heart that I pray our congregation has is one that is organic, that flows out of your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that as you get to know him and to love him more and more and discover the riches of the gospel and as you dwell in him and abide in him, 
that it will be very natural for, for, for you to talk about him, to share this good news with others, to be unwilling to hold it back. But as we sang earlier from Psalm 40, that we will not be um, slow to share this good news, to sing this good news, to reach out to friends and neighbors with this good news, this life-giving truth, this gospel that inherently holds the very operative power of God unto salvation by the Holy Spirit. And so as we embark, as we, as we, as we walk through this new chapter filled with all kinds of glorious things about our sovereign God, mysterious things. Let us remember the heart that is launched within it, a heart for the lost, a weeping and an anguishing and a a, a sorrowing over those who do not know the Lord and a heart to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ because there are certain things that we do not know and that we will only know when we go to heaven. And so we evangelize, we share the gospel, we reach out, trusting God in his sovereignty, but doing that which we know to do, which is to carry out the Great Commission. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this section of Romans. We thank you, Lord, for the first nine chapters of Romans and for all that you have taught and will teach us from these marvelous texts. We pray, Lord, that you, O God, would be exalted in our hearts as we, as we study this chapter on your sovereignty and election and your freedom to do all that you please. Lord, remind us that we are sinners and deserve only your wrath, but in wrath you've remembered mercy in Christ. And so we give you thanks and praise. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to cling to Christ alone for our salvation, trusting not in our own works, but in your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, I invite you to take your